0: So, uh, welcome and good afternoon, Uh, um, thank you for coming today to this event co-organized with the Institut Montaigne, it's my pleasure to uh, welcome in particular Nicolas Bouquet who's the research director um, at the Institut Montaigne and to welcome the authors of a study that the Institut Montaigne together with Terra Nova just published, which is called Saving the Right to Asylum. So I think the plan of today is that we will first hear a presentation um, of um, the uh, study by the two authors, or principal authors, followed uh, by a discussion um, where um, uh, Karen um, uh, Metz from Save the Children International will give comments to the authors. We had one more discussant from the European Commission who unfortunately called me yesterday um, because he was sick, um, so, uh, so I apologize that we don't have the EU uh, institutions represented, but I'm sure that you and the audience will um, add questions, remarks, um, uh, so that um, uh, this will be a rich and lively debate today. So thank you again for coming, and um, uh, a very warm, warm welcome again to to Montaigne. Nicola let me give the floor to you.
1: Thank you, Guntram. Uh, Hello to all of you, I'm Nicolas Bocquet from Institut Montaigne. We are very happy to be here in Brussels, that's our first event, um, to, to be part of the, of the debate uh, here in, in Brussels. Uh, we are very happy to organise it with uh, with Bruegel. Um We think, as a French think tank, it's a responsibility also to uh, to come here and to share with us some of the proposals we are making for policy making. That's our, what we do, um, especially when it regards uh, in important um, issues and policies at the European level. And and I'm very proud to do that uh, for this first time on this topic of migration and asylum um, because it's it's a very uh, important um, issue uh, of a special responsibility and it was a very special project that we had with Terra Nova. We thought that it is not um, a topic where we should score uh, any kind of points but where we have really to collaborate together to achieve uh, responsible and useful solutions to the problems we are facing up to our historical responsibilities so in March we started this working group with Terra Nova and um, in, in Institut Montaigne to work out some solutions, we published the report in October and here we are in Brussels, happy to share it with you and to have your comments because that's really the point, uh, to have your uh, your comments how you you receive these proposals uh, and how we can together uh, go forward we start with brussels We will then go on uh, March 21 in Berlin. We are planning to go in Italy, in Spain, other countries. Uh, So we really want to be part of this European debate. Uh, It's very timely. Our president has just published a letter written to all of you, uh, all of us, Europeans. Um, And then at the think tank, uh, we are happy to, to be part of this European conversation. Thank you very much.
2: Good afternoon. Yes, it's afternoon. Uh, good afternoon to everybody. Thank you to be uh, so, so, so many present. Uh, just a, a word of introduction. I'm Jean-Paul Trantiet, um, I'm now a lawyer. I used to be an official. Uh, I used to work four years in the Berlimont. It was a couple of decades ago. Um, And uh, now one of the uh, members of Institute Montaigne sometimes asked to uh, work on uh, EU uh, EU problems or EU solutions. Um, We can make it short uh, considering that you all had the opportunity to read the report. Uh, If not, please do. just a, a, a remark, uh, usually there is a, a, a summary of proposals of Institute Montaigne that is joined with the, with the document. It seems to uh, be missing uh, right now, but uh, it, it's uh, very easy to have it from the Institute Montaigne w- website. Um, to make it short, and to, and to, we will uh, uh, share the, 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 the presentation with uh, Marc Olivier, um, uh, a couple of points. Uh, first of all, um, the right of asylum, as everybody knows now, is uh, uh, now in the uh, uh, Genova Convention and uh, Convention for so Application. But it is also, and there are, there are often some journalists that uh, do not know that, this is also a great part of the European treaties. Uh, and just to quote uh, uh, a couple of, uh, of sentences, um, Uh, The asylum policy is considered a a shared policy in the Lisbon Treaty, consistent with the Geneva Convention, and based on the solidarity of member states. I think that some of us sometimes sometimes, uh, forget that. And it is a pity uh, just to have to recall that, uh, which are the basics of 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 the values that are in our treaty. And now coming to uh, the main proposal of uh, this report, uh, um, I think that the f- first one will be uh, was uh, to uh, request uh, to transform national authorities in charge of asylum policy in independent administrative authorities. We consider that asylum is a right. It is a right, uh, that is uh, uh, granted by international convention. That is uh, guaranteed by EU treaties. And this is not a question of policy that should be let in the hands of the politicians. This is uh, the reason why we are uh, really asking for every uh, uh, administration in charge of asylum to be independent from uh, the uh, politician, uh, politician forces. The second important uh, uh, um, proposal is also to have a real uh, European asylum agency. We are not talking about a completely centralized process where everybody everybody will have to file in Brussels and everything will be decided here, uh, but with a coordination agency that will, of course, coordinate the uh, independent national authorities and make sure that the criteria applied are the same, that the uh, policies are aligned, and that problems arising in a country can be solved uh, together. The third of uh, our uh, um, proposal, uh, which is probably the the most debated, is uh, to renounce to the uh, country of first country rule, the so-called Dublin rule or the Dublin system. Uh, we consider it is important to uh, change it because it is a complete failure. Uh, you know that uh, some of you know, uh, have learned, or some of you have experienced, that when we put this rule uh, uh, into force, it was just to uh, ensure that, uh, uh, countries situated at the external uh, frontiers, of uh, borders of, uh, of the EU, uh, should uh, uh, strengthen their uh, control. But it is a failure. We have to admit that. Uh, according to specialists, uh, the number of registration in Italy is in Italy is about uh, 60 to 65 percent. Uh, the number of uh, registration in Greece is probably less. And then this uh, effort to strengthen uh, the uh, external border was a failure. More important for us, um, this system was supposed to uh, forbid uh, uh, multiple multiple requests uh, of asylum to different countries, but it didn't work. You know, multiple requests are still possible. The only condition is that you have to wait uh, between about uh, 18 months. Uh, without being controlled by any administration or any police force. And then you are uh, entitled to apply to another country, which is uh, completely a nonsense. And the third uh, reason why, the third important reason why we consider this rule uh, should be changed is because it is uh, a kind of uh, encouragement to uh, uh, clandestinity. Because, of course, there are uh, a lot of uh, illegal uh, uh, migrants that are trying to apply through uh, an application for asylum and then that try to stay just uh, under the radars uh, to stay and and to go from a country to another. So, at the end of the day, we don't see any uh, sensible reason to uh, keep this system. And then uh, we Consider that uh, the first point should be to allow uh, asylum seeker to express uh, um, uh, a wish, uh, considering the country where they will be uh, uh, received, and then uh, to have this European asylum making, of course, a kind of per equation and a kind of uh, system based on uh, EU member states' solidarity. That's for the first Part of the proposal, and if you allow me, I will give the floor to uh, Marc Olivier to uh, comment on the others.
3: Yes, uh, thank you, <clears throat> Jean Paul. Thank you very much. I was not directly involved in the group uh, working on this field, but I, as a um, uh, director of studies of Terra Nova, I'm happy to uh, discuss this matter with you. So I will. Just uh, develop four points. The first one is the uh, readmission agreements. Uh, the second one uh, deals with uh, countries of transit. The third one is to uh, facilitate integration and the last point, which is quite important is our proposal to create European receiving and proceeding uh, processing centers um, in um, the countries on the border of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, So, the first point is that uh, if we have, uh, as Jean-Paul said, um, European procedures with this new agency, um, we we should have also European procedures uh, for the removal of rejected applicants Uh, So, we should give to the Union um, the task of negotiating um, readmission agreements with countries of origins, uh, which is heading to a new uh, EU migration diplomacy uh, on which we will try to work in a next common working group. Uh, The second uh, second point is that we should also have a a policy towards transit countries where the situation of migrants is very uh, uh, harsh, uh, to say the least. Uh, And so to ensure that they receive migrants in a way that respects human dignity, which is definitely not the case uh, in many countries uh, today, although uh, and especially in countries with which we have agreements. Uh, so respect human dignity. This means provide them training and orientation programs, uh, aid for their return, um, and make asylum seekers' path to Europe safer uh, with the, uh, in work together with the uh, UNHCR. Um, But in no circumstances uh, should these countries of transit be tasked with handling asylum applications on behalf of member states. This is our duty to to process with uh, the request. Uh, So we do not recommend, of course, any outsourcing or externalisation of our duty of international protection. And in no way uh, should the EU financially support countries that receive migrants in conditions that are not respectful of their human dignity. Uh, The third point is that we should have programs uh, to facilitate integration of uh, asylum seekers, um, give them additional civil and social rights, uh, like uh, access to the labour market in a shorter period of time. In France, for example, they have to wait quite long, whereas in Germany it's quite uh, shorter. And uh, of course, the the main goal is to facilitate their integration and to welcome them well. And the first point, uh, the last point, sorry, is maybe the the most. Uh, Important is to create European receiving and processing centers in new countries having in a Mediterranean coast, uh, which implies, by the way, France, naturally. Uh, And uh, this is a a huge uh, challenge for for France. So how would that work? Uh, The situation would be that, as today, Asylum seekers, uh, seekers, as in the best case, rescued at sea, and they are brought um, because of the uh, maritime law to the nearest uh, coast, and there they are received in uh, centres uh, where they can apply and request asylum in the member state of their choice. And uh, of course, so the, the member state of their choice is not necessarily the one where they uh, landed. And therefore, that's why we, uh, we shift from the uh, Dublin uh, system of today. And then the European agency we talked about uh, would have the responsibility to equalize uh, the requests and to share the burden of uh, distributing refugees among member states. Then, member states will open offices within the centres and send agents who will be tasked with processing applications in less than one month so that it's uh, uh, manageable. And fourth, those (coughs) asylum seekers who receive protection are transferred to the member states that has uh, granted it. Uh, so that's for the whole, um, the, the, the general idea, of course, we can discuss that uh, for further. Thank you.
4: Thank you so much, Marco olivier and Jean-Paul, and then uh, Karen has kindly agreed to give the comments on the report, and okay. then we can open it to questions. Maybe we'll start with a little discussion, and then I really welcome you to, to ask questions, because it's a fantastic report in a sense that it gives research and fact-based information about the asylum process, which is oftentimes is rare in the debate, not only journalists, but even among the policymakers. So it's, I think it's a fantastic opportunity to ask very specific questions.
5: OK, uh, thanks a lot. Uh, I'm Karen. I work for Save the Children. So I'm a bit of an outlier here, uh, uh, as I work for civil society. Um, we've been a key responder also in the so-called, is this working OK, okay here, yes, okay. in the so-called refugee crisis. A first caveat that I wanted to make when I saw the title of the report is that it says saving the right to asylum. And I think we should really talk, talk about saving the right to asylum in the EU. because. Uh, If you go to member states and you say, you know, we need to save the right to asylum, they will say, for sure we will help you save the right to asylum in Uganda, in Lebanon, in Jordan, as long as it's not in the EU. So I think we need to be really clear in making the case for the right to asylum in the EU. Um, Then, as a responder, I can tell you a little bit of our experience on the ground, because we used to operate a search and rescue ship, which a few years ago, if I may remind you, was really welcomed, and we did that at the initiative of the Italian Coast Guard. Of course, uh, the atmosphere turned sour quite quickly. Now there's almost no NGOs operating search and rescue operations in the Mediterranean, and I was just talking to my Italian colleague the other day, and she said, well, nobody is arriving. Where are they? Certainly not applying for asylum in the EU. Um, Another case where we've seen really an active policy to limit access to asylum was of course in Greece. Um, We saw the implementation of the EU-Turkey deal. We saw the introduction of admissibility criteria which introduced a huge backlog of uh, asylum claims and tens of thousands of people stuck on the islands, nowhere to go. There's a few other examples of how the right to asylum was limited there. Uh, You have the admissibility which afterwards, if you look at it, didn't seem to be the most effective policy. But you also have limitations to the right to family reunification under Dublin. There was a deal between Greece and Germany where family reunification was halted, and there was also some tapering with vulnerability criteria in Greece. And vulnerability is an important tool for migration management, and I, I think we need to keep our eyes open for that. Because there's a list, when you're on the islands, um, the Greek government has a list of vulnerability criteria and if you're deemed vulnerable, then you can be transferred to the mainland and you can access your legitimate right to asylum. And there's been a continuous political pressure to influence that vulnerability list and to also influence uh, the establishment, how the appeals committees in Greece were operating. So This is why I actually welcome when I read the report uh, the establishment of independent asylum agencies in the countries because we've seen a lot of interference from the political side and also at the very technical level when we're talking about Dublin transfers, kind of introducing new security measures that make Dublin transfers much lower, etc. So I think there, uh, an independent national asylum uh, agency would make a lot of sense. Um, Of course, where we've also seen a limitation to the right to asylum is at the overall European policy level. Um, Fewer and fewer people do actually get refugee status, like full-blown refugee status. In the report, you don't make a distinction between refugee status and subsidiary protection, but it does, in some countries, limit your access to certain rights. In Sweden, if you have subsidiary protection, you're not entitled to family reunification. For instance, um, we see the introduction of the border procedure in both the return directive and the asylum procedures regulation, um, where it's very clear that they want to limit the amount of they, they want to contain and limit the <coughs> amount of arrivals to the EU. And there's a in the current return directive that's on the table. There's a, a definition of the risk of absconding, which is so broad that, in, that it includes all irregular migrants arriving to the EU. So once they arrive they can be immediately contained and if necessary indefinitely or be sent back. One other thing that I think we need to really closely watch is how the European budget negotiations will uh, proceed because a lot of the proposals in in the report also talk about you know, strengthening asylum systems, strengthening these European process of fixing centers that need to be um, funded by the EU. But one of the central discussions on the current Asylum and Migration Fund, which was previously the AMIF, is on whether this fund could be spent entirely externally or within the EU. So there's a lot of discussion even for such a strong domestic fund uh, on spending it externally. And if you look at the combination of how much money will be spent on strengthening asylum systems outside of the EU, it is quite concerning. Regarding the report, I think there were a lot of valuable proposals in there, and a lot of the, and some of the proposals I've already seen in some of the Parliament reports. I know, for instance, Ellie Schlein, as an MEP and a shadow rapporteur on Dublin, was a fierce advocate for abandoning the country of first entry criterion, and a light version of that was included in the current Dublin proposal. There was also a proposal on um, making sure labour market access is uh, available within three months in the current Reception Conditions Directive. Rapporteur Sophie Infeld included a two-month limit between applying for asylum and uh, accessing the labor market. Of course, <clears throat> as we know, the asylum package currently is going nowhere, and uh, it remains to be seen what happens when a new commission is in place. Some of the proposals, and I may be uh, maybe a little more critical here. I think we need to be mindful of the political space that we're operating in. I am um, a Belgian our government fell over the migration compact. Uh, so <laughs> I think we need to also be um, a bit realistic. I feel like actively calling for more Europeanization or um, like a European agency for asylum, uh, uh, giving the, the free choice to refugees, while we can all agree that this is completely reasonable, I feel like the political space for these kind of proposals might be a bit limited. Um, what I did really like, and where I personally think we can make progress, just also where I see we can make progress from an advocacy perspective, is when we um, take incremental steps. So if we look at the processing centers, for instance, you also suggested working with pilots, where you pilot here and there, and then you connect to pilots, and then you show that it works, and then all these, all these little pilots can be connected into a system. Mm-hmm. I feel like, we need to show that it works slowly, from the bottom up, and then we can achieve a systematic change at a higher level. This is where I, this is also where I see movement. I see movement um, with uh, municipalities and communities working together, regions working together, universities working together. As long as it steers away from that toxic, contentious political level that we see um, right now. So. I think overall I would really support many of the proposals that are in there, but I also really think we need to be strategic about how we approach this given um, the current political context.
4: Thank you very much, Karen. And maybe if I can open with the first question, sort of you could give a segue into that question. On the political reception of your findings and also your recommendations, you know, is there agreement that the Dublin process needs to be changed, that the first entry needs to be changed? And if there is such an agreement, politically, what would be the acceptable solutions? in Marco olivier or
2: Jean-Paul. No, I can can make a a, a comment on that. Uh, First of all, uh, thank you for the suggestions for us to be more precise and say about uh, the right to asylum in the EU. It was so obvious to us that we (laughs) didn't even think uh, about that. But uh, of course, it's a good point. Um, Regarding um, the uh, uh, rule of first entry, the the country of first entry. I must say that when you talk uh, face-to-face, bilaterally, even with politicians, with uh, uh, persons uh, that are aware of the problem, most of them agree that uh, uh, this rule is a complete failing, and that it has to be changed. But when we come to, uh, I would say, official circles, and even when we discuss with the uh, services of the commission, Uh, they told us, ah, it's too early to propose something like that. Uh, We know that it was not functioning. We are not prepared to uh, table uh, a kind of uh, uh, renouncement to this uh, rule and to put something else. Now, uh, coming to something else, I mean, we don't think that uh, the uh, Last words should should be uh, left to uh, the asylum seekers. They have just to express a wish, and after that, of course, there will be a kind of per equation system because there is this necessity of solidarity between member states, and this is something to be, of course, managed at the at the level of the of the uh, European agency. Uh, I think, but uh, please, Marco uh, if you want to. Well, I just uh,
3: will add uh, <clears throat> a small word to say on the political. Uh, opportunity to change uh, the Dublin system. Some people could say, "Well, at least the wave of migration has come down, so the political pressure is not so high at the moment." That, but that would be an illusion to think that, because probably uh, there will be other waves, and political decisions will be um, have to be made, and in. Uh, Context of a very high pressure, which is not a good context to take new political decisions. So we should anticipate, I think, this problem and 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 go ahead um, uh, before.
4: Thank you. And Marco, olivier mentioned that the sort of the pressure has come down because the arrivals have subsided, but at what cost in terms mm-hmm. of the. European values, but also, as the report and you have discussed, the legality of some of those agreements, for example, given the French constitution. Mm -hmm. um, Could you elaborate on that? Because to me, that was not clear before, the the full legal aspects of it. Mm.
3: On the legal aspect,
4: (laughs) it's for can.
2: Yeah, on on the legal aspect, there is a clear uh, constitutional uh, uh, rule that is prohibiting, uh, uh, at least in France, the externalization of the process of uh, providing asylum. This rule has been adapted within the EU by a special reform of our constitution. And we accepted the uh, Dublin system because of uh, uh, a change in our constitution. There is no way to accept that asylum seekers be treated in Turkey, in Libya, or in other countries. This is our role, this is our rules, and this is our duty. That's clearly something that can be negotiated. After that, yes, the number of seekers sharply decreased. At what cost, first of all? Even financially you know that uh, it's already uh, 3 billion uh, given to turkey another 3 billion is just being discussed uh, it's a lot of money but also this will uh, this will have a hand, an end you know uh, we don't have precise figures but we estimate that there are about 2.5 million of persons in Turkey coming from the countries where uh, there was war. Are they all asylum uh, seekers? I don't know, because it is, of course, a case-by-case decision. But if, uh, who can consider that Turkey can uh, just uh, 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 receive uh, one or two million more? No, it's not, it's not completely impossible. And at what cost uh, should we uh, uh, renounce to our rights and to our value just to uh, save uh, uh, a system uh, that uh, just needs to be uh, to be amended?
4: Mm-hmm. And Marco Olivier, uh, the sort of the sub, uh, lower numbers now given. Have given the politicians a breathing room, and they appear to be happy, content with that. So, is there risk of more of these deals emerging, or maybe it at sort of targeting other aspects of uh, asylum process well, or migration as well? I know we're focusing just on, on asylum, yeah. but
3: uh, yeah. Um. I think that, well, Jean Paul talked about the deal we have with Turkey, which is uh, questionable uh, on moral standards, but the situation is even worse with Libya, of, of course, course, because we don't have uh, a proper deal with Libya, but we just close our eyes and we know that the situation is very, uh, very harmful for the migrants uh, in Libya. And so I. I um, I, I don't think that we can still handle this situation, this very ambiguous situation with Libya.
4: Could you elaborate a little bit on the Libya situation? Is it the bilateral deals with the specific groups part of the of the? Forces in Libya. I mean, because it's very opaque mm-hmm. in the general public debate. Yep. Well,
3: uh, as far as I know, I don't know. Maybe Jean-Paul knows more. But the Italy negotiated with uh, Libya directly, at least with uh, one of uh, the power <laughs> in Libya, and probably also directly with groups. And so we have this problem with uh, uh, smuggling groups uh, that are, in a way, financed probably. So. Uh, <laughs> Uh, We we, we cannot go on with the situation.
4: Karen, maybe you want to comment something from the practical aspects you meet in your work, from these deals.
5: (laughs) Yes. Well, um, the thing is, what you're saying is right. We cannot really externalize asylum claims in the sense that it's impossible for a member state to go externally and establish an asylum system there for that member state. But what we can do is pursue what I call the Agadas model, which is what we see in Niger, where people are arriving in a center and you have IOM and UNHCR working together. Frontex has now an external mandate. EASO's mandate is going to be expanded externally, where they kind of say, okay, these people need to be sent back to their countries of origin, and these people can apply for resettlement, and then we can see where these pledges lead to. Uh, In terms of deals, there's been, because, Europe used such an interest focused approach, it has not always worked. Senegal, countries like Senegal and Mali and Tunisia, have been resisting these deals, but we cannot deny that we see some movement between Morocco and Spain. We see um, indeed uh, that Italy has an MOU with Libya and Libyan forces. We see Niger uh, complying, and Niger is really working also, it's very cooperative also because they don't have a large diaspora because a lot of people in Niger are too poor to migrate. Uh, and we see what I find very concerning, what we need to keep an eye on, uh, increased cooperation with countries like Sudan, uh, which is, I mean, which is really developing. Uh, so there are some spaces in which they will try to uh, put this model forward. I think.
2: I think we 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 agree on that, and and uh, most of our countries are already working with uh, HCR yeah. just to put some kind of, I would say. Uh, uh, special, uh, a special gate uh, to uh, look at the, at, the, at the request and uh, then express a first view. but at the end of the day it is uh, for the country to make the final decision and I think it works. it works in some countries. we can of course this is not externalization that's a, a process that uh, that is working with the uh, HCR. Um, but maybe just a, a final comment about what you see should we be, uh, so politically reasonable. Um, that's a good question. You know, that's a good question. I think every think tank should uh, ask uh, this question, uh, which is very important. We're not elected. We're not elected. We have time, uh, and we are able to uh, provide some uh, suggestions that probably politicians can do. And uh, and and that's one of our forces, just to look probably uh, to have a longer view and to say, look, uh, this system cannot work anymore. Uh, maybe it can work three, four, five years, which is uh, the duration of a political mandate. But uh, we are just thinking about what should happen in 10, 20 uh, years uh, ahead. And uh, that I think uh, Marc Olivier can comment on the name of Terranova, but I think for Montaigne, it is very important to say that uh, we are looking for the future, really
4: and just even and for, for the, probably
2: rugged too but. <laughs> and just even for
4: the near future uh, we all talk about the from the macro point of view about the uh upcoming potential crisis in Turkey from the macroeconomic point of view, was the tightening of the Fed and the ECB. <coughs> and that this country is already on the brink of uh, macroeconomic collapse. So 3 billion is not going to make a big difference for that in the next couple of years. And there is, of course, a risk of uh, restart of the arrivals. Uh, of course, we discussed that it's very important to be uh, make a special distinction of asylum seekers versus a broader migration flows. Uh, but you also raised an interesting point in your report, where. You have some people who used to have normally access to the temporary labour market or maybe longer labour market in Europe and they come because maybe there are pool but they're push but also there are pull factors from the macroeconomic point of view. Those uh, permits have dropped significantly mm-hmm. and you are saying that some of those people are opportunistically using the asylum process. So rather than, you know, further tightening on the labor market access for some of these people. Would you suggest that maybe, again, giving more of the temporary work visas, where people come for employment opportunity and remove illegality from the aspect?
2: Difficult question, because we are working on this a subject with uh, Terranova and este Montaigne on a more general migration uh, mm-hmm. uh, report that will be uh, published probably at the end of the, of the current year. Um, now, uh, why did we separate asylum, uh, the asylum question? Uh, first of all, as I uh, already said, because it's a right. It should be uh, regulated by the rule of law, but not by a politician's choice. But you're right in saying that uh, one of the reasons why there are so many asylum seekers and so many uh, uh, applications rejected is because uh, we tried to close the door in many, many countries. And we try to uh, put an end to a kind of migration, labor migration, family migration, etc. that is uh, now uh, in many, many countries, almost all of our countries are prohibited. And now, of course, uh, what are doing the uh, candidates for a kind of legal migration? Of course, they are applying through uh, the uh, asylum uh, gate, just because. Uh, it uh, provides them with uh, three to nine months uh, right to stay, and then uh, they can just try to escape from any control or try to adapt, integrate. The, you know, it's a, it's a, it's really a practical problem. That's the reason why we think that the, the, our next step will be to think about uh, migration policy. Uh, but one of our motto, of course, will be. This should be a EU migration policy, not a policy where every country is doing uh, what uh, it wants uh, within its borders, which is uh, uh, a policy for the past, not for the future.
4: And maybe i allow myself one last question to the panelists, and then we'll open to the floor. Um, on the specific issue of the Mediterranean region, you know, uh, originally, maybe the first point of entry was in to incentivize them to control their borders better. Um, is that true in, in, in your view? And also, how the what is the role of Frontex uh, now? How that has changed? Uh, if you could comment on that, do we need a special deal for Mediterranean? And how is this trade-off, you know, first point of entry versus border control? How has that has evolved? If uh, whoever wants to start first.
3: <laughs> yes, the European strategy was to. Uh, say that to put pressure on countries on the Mediterranean border, especially Greece and Italy, to uh, push them to control their borders better. Um, and the, w- when you discuss with officials, at least in France, they always say, if we lower the pressure, they won't control their borders well, and they're not doing enough, at least today. So. Uh, we, we, we should really keep this uh, direction. But that was quite unfair, in fact, because uh, especially with, with Italy and Greece, because they, the, the situation was really uh, um, unpredictable and completely new. And so and at that time, we didn't help them properly to face the new situation. And so uh, they, they have good reasons to uh, protest and say that they didn't um, receive the support they were expecting from uh, the European Solidarity. Um, so it's the, the whole uh, situation gets back to the, the first point, is that it doesn't work uh, today, mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. system. So, uh, but what we wanted to do is to propose a system that doesn't imply uh, um, sovereignty transfer. Each country stays with its own sovereign um, uh, entitlements to especially, of course, the borders, and also the duty of international protection, which is not transferred to the European level, but stays in each country.
4: Yeah. And how does that work exactly Frontex you know the responsibility of Frontex versus the na- national responsibilities
2: Frontex is, is supposed to be here for, to help the mm-hmm. national uh, authorities and the national for- uh, forces um, i don't have the exact figure in mind, but I think that uh, Frontex agents are less than five hundred uh, so uh, Uh, They have to rely to uh, the country forces, to the border police uh, of the the national border police and national border forces, and just to cooperate. But without uh, renouncing to sovereignty, what we have to uh, uh, to go. is uh, in the direction of a kind of sharing of sovereignty that is discussing of what should what rules should we apply how can we apply them what migration policy should we put in place and after that it should be of course managed by the national authority but taking into account uh, the uh, common objectives otherwise otherwise it will not work and in this in such a system i think that uh, uh, um, Reinforce Frontex would be very helpful. I mean, reinforce uh, up to 10,000 people, uh, probably, just to, to provide a real help in these countries where, of course, it is much more difficult to control the borders than it will be, it will be the case in Luxembourg, uh, which mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just should be aware of that. Mm-hmm.
5: Uh, Yes, well, I think that we do need to recognize that the borders of Spain and Greece and Italy are our borders, that that there are joint common borders, and I do see a role for Frontex there, but I also want to have a bit of a reality check here because, as you said, Frontex doesn't have a lot of staff. And um, while member states keep shouting that they need to protect our borders, we need to better protect our borders, but there is no border staff. Like, Where are they going to get this border staff? National countries, firstly, they don't have the right amount of equipped and trained border staff. And secondly, a lot of these staff, these people don't want to go to Italy, Greece, or Spain to work there. So we saw this in the hotspots as well, Frontex made repeated pledges to ask, you know, we need more people deployed from the member states in the hotspots, but these pledges weren't Fulfilled, and the same for the European Asylum Agency. So while I see, in theory, also from member states, a commitment, you know, in exchange for Italy, Greece, and Spain managing their borders better, that they would finance that, that they would commit staff to that, I am still waiting to see how this will play out. Because I mean, it's very shiny to say 10,000 new staff, but we will really have to see how this will work in in reality. And as far as the Mediterranean system is is, is concerned, I also think it's double because. You, you, we want a solution now, because the problem is there now. And we see that the Dublin negotiations are in a deadlock. So I do think that, like I said, incremental steps could be good, establishing pilot centers, trying to see how it works with a few countries relocating, etc. But we need to make sure that we keep our eyes also on a, a more structural reform of the system, and, that, and that, the, that we don't forget that that is also needed. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Thank you. So,
4: yes, I would like to open the floor to questions. Please do raise a hand. And we can spend here the rest of the afternoon, I think, on this topic. Hopefully we'll solve it. <laughs> yes. Hello, my name is Martin. I'm with
6: the... Oh, yes it is.
7: Uh, I'm with the Danish newspaper um, called Jyllands Posten. Um, just one of the main issues here is, of course,
2: still to get to achieve some kind of uh, more solidarity among member states. Um, so, could you, maybe because we've been locked in that position for several years now, so maybe could you go a bit more into how would you secure that kind of uh, solidarity? I can uh, uh, speak about one uh, or two of our proposals. Uh, first of all, uh, because it is uh, uh, the, there are provisions in our treaties, there should be, uh, of course, enforced by our, not only politicians, but also by judges. Um, now, coming to uh, political pressure, uh, we suggested uh, in line with uh, some proposal from the commission, just to think about uh, budgetary uh, retaliation for uh, countries that are not prepared to be so uh, uh, in solidarity with the others. There is another uh, uh, point that is raised in the uh, latest letter from Emmanuel Macron, that is to uh, think about the reshaping of Schengen. That is, you can't have, this is for countries that are not prepared to have a common asylum policy, you can't have uh, the advantages of Schengen without having the uh, solidarity uh, in the asylum policy. I think it is something that is probably difficult to be heard in certain countries, but it is also a point that should be made.
4: Karen?
5: Yes, it's difficult. Um,
4: uh, but you mentioned something very interesting that at the grassroots levels, at the regional, below the toxic yes, national so level, it's actually appears to be working of, somewhere.
5: Yes, exactly. So we see a lot of cities signing pledges that they want to relocate people, that they want to receive people. So there is kind of a grassroots willingness to cooperate. I also thought that that that, that the proposal from Macron this morning was really interesting. I've always thought about that, you know, because I've also also seen Schengen. It, it's just other side of the coin of our asylum system. And as long as our asylum system isn't harmonized, you know, how do you align those things? Um, But yes, I think looking at the grassroots kind of solidarity movement is a first step. And like I said, maybe working with a few countries first, seeing how it works. But even now, if you look at the Mediterranean arrivals, the tough negotiations last summer, every time there was a ship to talk to Malta, Spain, France, every time trying to come to an agreement, I think... We need to get these countries on board, but then we also, other countries need to show real commitment. And um, as I said, there is very little political space. Maybe after the European elections, we will see a bit of an opening. Uh, we can only be hopeful. Yes,
4: hopefully. <laughs> Just attempted to ask the question, given the national elections that happened in Europe, you're still hopeful for the after European elections? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't know. Good question.
8: <laughs>
4: Mm-hmm. The gentleman here the, had a question.
6: Nico from DEFCO, but talking on my own behalf. Um, let's face it, on, uh, in the end, it's always about budget, about available resources, about political making choices. And, and there, we as DEFCO, we try to do development cooperation and try to find a, a solution for the root causes for, a, for a migra- migration and people seeking asylum. Um, Where do you think the balance should be? Should there be kind of a a shift towards more uh, making camps to to, to accept uh, refugees in a good way? Or should we more focus on on development cooperation and get that solidarity from member states and the population to helping people in order that they don't need to flee? Mm -hmm.
4: Maybe it also raises the broad issue of Syria, the European policy towards Syria. Uh, I'm not sure we... I,
3: I, would, I completely agree with your idea of uh, we should uh, um, enforce more uh, development cooperation, but that deals with uh, migrations on the whole. We focused in here with asylum seekers, uh, which flee their countries because of the war. Or because of personal persecution, and naturally, and the highest figures concerned Syria, and uh, it's not uh, mainly uh, in Syria. It's really a, a question of political situation and uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, of the uh, uprising of civil society and so on. The, you know the story. Does, so it's not directly linked to uh, an economic problem of uh, underdevelopment. Um, and of course, we can discuss the situation of North Sudan or Southern Sudan, where it's really very poor countries. Uh, but we are still very, um, um, <clears throat> we, we, we also wanted to uh, defend Asylum as a personal right. Mm-hmm. So. Does uh, um, you, you understand in what sense I don't fully agree with uh, your, your your point?
5: Um, can I make a yeah. I think we should be mindful that development aid isn't entirely geared at keeping people where they are. I think development aid should be, we should look at the needs of the countries and look look also at more things than development aid, also look at trade and all the other things that make countries grow and make countries better places. Uh, Also safety, for instance, being number one. Um, And I think there are also, coming different budgets for different things. You have an, a budget for humanitarian and forced displacement, sort of. I know that it's all getting a bit blurred right now, and I'm following the NDICI negotiations as well a little bit. But I think what we do need to, we need to protect our development funds as well a little bit from the whole migration narrative. There's already a 10% benchmark uh, proposed in the NDICI, mm-hmm. which border management is also only able to be very technical so we can we need to really track what is going on there um, so while I, I just feel like it should be an end and story we can focus on root causes and I mean we, we made a report on why children stay in high migrating communities not migrating to the EU but just migrating in general and the solution to that is is development oriented it's having more than one meal a day or, a day or being able to complete your secondary education. So I think we should focus on both. But we should really be mindful that our development budget isn't only aimed at stopping migration.
2: Yes, I, I fully agree with that. And uh, um, I don't want to preempt what will be in the in the, the next report. But uh, uh, Marc-Olivier already uh, spoke about uh, migration uh, diplomacy, which is something we are uh, calling for, because uh, it is uh, clear necessity for the EU to have this kind of integrated policy, integrated uh, um, uh, diplomacy uh, that will uh, work with different tools and uh, the development, uh, aid for development is one of them. Probably commercial agreement can be other. Probably um, military protection agreements can also be uh, uh, used for that. This is just to to look at the uh, complete set of tools that is at the disposal of the eu that is not used at, at, the, at the EU level because mainly of uh, national uh, uh, would say national sovereignty and that we have in the coming years and decades, just to put together, to articulate together, not totally to unify, but to make sure that it is working in the same direction and uh, consistently. Uh, I think that is uh, one of our big stakes for the future. Thank
4: you. There was a lady in the front. Yes, thank you. I'm Erika
8: Schulze. I work in the Secretariat of the LIBE Committee of the European Parliament. Um, yes, first I wanted to say what, what I'm always astonished about is that this, this connection between border control and asylum, because that you control your border better does not mean that or should not mean that people cannot apply for asylum. So this is, uh, I think, a very strange uh, connection that has been established in recent years. But I, what I wanted to ask you with regard to your study is um, – that uh, the the Parliament in its position on the Dublin recast is also proposing to abolish the first entry criterion and establishes um, a system with a limited choice for applicants. Um, One of the critics uh, of this is is that it is said that if Europe would have such a distribution system, this would act as a pull factor and even more people um, would come. So I was wondering if you had thought about this or if you had encountered similar uh, arguments in your discussions. Um, But that brings, I think, at the same time another uh, issue a bit to the forefront, which is the question, how should the refugees arrive in Europe? Because the way how they arrived in 2000 15 was certainly not the best way that first they had to take a tiny boat to uh, get uh, on a greek island where many of them drowned then they had to walk from greece basically to austria or to germany to find a safe place in europe um, because uh, this i can maybe say quickly here greece did not have an asylum system and they did what they have done regardless of the Dublin regulation, all the time they give the people a paper, leave Greece in four weeks, and uh, the people just disappeared. Um, so my question is, did you think about these, these two issues, about this question of the pull factor, if you have this distribution system where the applicant can choose, and then this question uh, of how can the people possibly Arrive in a safer way if they are looking for asylum. Uh,
3: maybe <laughs> I can say a word on the first, the first yes. uh, argument. Pull factor, of course, uh, is always um, uh, is one of the most um, frequent arguments, especially in the French context. Uh, the Ministry of Interior is permanently. Uh, bringing up this argument, pull factor, um, which is not convincing at all, I think, because we're talking again about asylum seekers which are entitled to have a personal review of their situation. Uh, so it's not we're not talking about uh, collective moves, uh, but about um, personal rights. So I, I don't see how... Uh, if if we treat uh, people better, uh, it doesn't change their personal situation. Uh, so I'm I'm really not convinced by that, and it's it's also quite cynical, and uh, at least in the French context, again, um, quite cynical and ineffective, because our policy is to uh, uh, treat. Uh, as 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 bad as possible, asylum seekers to avoid this uh, pull factor, and it's not working at all because people who are coming from Sudan. Uh, well,
4: We're not competing with the Assad regime. Yeah, exactly. We're not successful in this competition. <laughs> Fortunately. <laughs> Fortunately. So, well, that, that's the point. Yeah. And sorry, I mentioned the pull and push factors, but from the economic point of view, for the migrants, what I meant to say, not for the asylum sake but for the migrants, is oftentimes migrants come because there is an offer of a job. That's what I was referring to as a pull factor. There is a healthy, Offer of a job, there's an overheating, maybe, economy, and the domestic supply of labor is not coping. And people arrive, take temporarily those jobs. It's very cyclical. It's very visible in the crisis, for example, in Spain, when Latin American migrants left, because there were no more jobs. And therefore, Spanish unemployment was not as high. It's already high, but it was not as high, thanks, actually, to that buffer factor. And the, and it worked very well in that specific case. But so there was a very different pull-and-pull pushback.
2: If, if I can add a word, I think, uh, of course, uh, I fully agree with that, Mark yes. Uh, but probably uh, the most important pull factor is the absence of independent process of decision and the absence of harmonization of law and the, absent, the absence of uh, EU integrated process for the instruction of the, of the uh, asylum, uh, asylum application. Uh, if you consider that there is just an, independ- an individual right to protect... Uh, um, ruled by uh, treaties, national rules, under, uh, by, and uh, managed by uh, independent authorities under the control of, of course, independent judges, there will not be no pull factor. The, pull, the main pull factor is the, 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 the opacity of the system, the, thing, the, the, the fact that there is no harmonization of the uh, legislation. In some countries, you can you have to wait three months just to access the labor market. In other, it is six, nine months. Of course, uh, this is uh, a kind of uh, uh, rule that uh, uh, illegal immigrants and, uh, 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 of course, the uh, illegal uh, um, what the name again of the the, the, the uh, um, migrants helper, illegal migrants helper. So uh, uh, migrants. Exactly, uh, they, they are playing with that. Uh, And uh, a common uh, integrated uh, EU policy should put an end to that.
5: Karen? Well, I think we should differentiate between what is a pull factor between European member states and what is a pull factor maybe generally to the EU. I don't know. And I've thought about this just now, because I I, I haven't really thought about it before. But um, we have this new system with migration liaison officers, which are being sent out to third countries. It might be worth thinking of having asylum liaison officers in uh, embassies in third countries, which Mm -hmm. could check or verify uh, eligibility uh, for asylum. Um, That would at least uh, ensure a bit of a safer way to arrive to Europe, maybe. And it could also be an initial buffer uh, to say, well, looking at your situation, you will have absolutely um, no possibility to enter the EU. Maybe this is a utopic proposal. I don't know. I haven't really thought about it, but it would be good to have the embassies involved and the EU representations involved in third countries, maybe, to yeah. give some more accurate information. And I thought about that because I met someone in Agadas who said that before migrating, he had been to the Italian Uh, representation three times in Senegal and they always refused him and he didn't get any information and in the end he decided to migrate. So there might be a role there for them. Mm Um, Hello, I'm from the Liaison Office of the Bundestag. Um, Talking about the uh, pull factors between the member states, I think this should also be seen in context with the principle of solidarity and equal sharing of responsibilities. Because since we have these pull factors, if the asylum seekers can decide themselves in which country they want to apply, there is this unequal share. And how do you want to tackle that as long as there is no harmonization? Thank you. Mm
3: Well, that's precisely one of our proposal. Uh, maybe you will complete, if I'm not completely correct. But the idea is that <clears throat> uh, there should be some kind of harmonisation and uh, equilibrium between the, the countries, and that would be specifically one role of this European agency, uh, which will look closely at the. Uh, uh, situation in each country, the applications, and redistribute mm-hmm. among the countries when there, there's obviously uh, excess in, in a place and uh, uh, some places um, in other countries. So that that's the role of the agency. But then each country has to uh, process with the application. Mm-hmm. We had a, a,
2: a working lunch, lunch with uh, the German ambassador in Paris. Uh, he explained us, uh, or tried to explain us, uh, about uh, part of the uh, German system that is, uh, asylum seekers that are, to some extent, assigned to a land, they have the right to go uh, in another one, but without any help. Uh, and this is a system that can be uh, efficient. You know? uh, if you want to go to France or to Italy, of course, uh, we will see through the asylum uh, authority if it is uh, correct in terms of uh, solidarity. At the end of the process, you will be assigned to a given country. You can accept that or refuse that. But if you receive that, don't ask for any uh, Subvention, any any uh, help uh, uh, in any kind. That's what we have been explained about the German system. I'm I'm not a specialist in that, Uh, but uh, also I think it could be something uh, efficient at the EU level. Mm
4: -hmm. And also, as you mentioned in the report, that might also help. The cost of integration might decrease, although it's less visible to a politician. If the migrant seeker can choose a place where they might have better chances of integrating. In a case of redistribution, I think some of the, you know, Latvia has taken some migrants. Almost none of them stayed in Latvia. They, so they actually, they're actually they not so bad compared to others in terms of compliance. But uh, in the end of the day, nobody stayed, because the environment domestically was so hostile that there was no, they couldn't rent an apartment. Nobody would rent them an the apartment. You know, they couldn't find any jobs. So the, the people picked up and left.
2: And of course, what uh, uh, Marco mentioned about the, 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 the minimum level of rights that is uh, granted to asylum seekers should be, of course, harmonized, because uh, there is no way uh, out of that, of course.
4: Maybe we'll take one last question uh, <coughs> coming towards the yeah. end. Maybe two. two. <laughs> <You're>, but two <laughs> yes. at the same time. <laughs> <coughs> Thank you. Uh, is
1: my name. I'm a student uh, here in Brussels. And I wanted to ask, uh, what is your suggestion with people who are refused? Uh, who are not given asylum, and uh, because there's a problem in countries like in Germany, for example, where people just burn their passport or they injure themselves, and then they can't be sent back to their countries. So, if you really want, it's—I mean, you suffer; the conditions are bad. But if you really want, you can stay in Europe somehow, even though you're refused. And so, what's your solution to that problem?
2: Maybe we can Maybe the take same, yeah, all together and, exactly, and just yeah. uh, make thank a global yeah, response. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes,
7: um, thank you very much. My name is Lars-Erik Fjellström and I work for the Swedish permanent representation. And I'm actually dealing with the, the whole asylum package except Dublin in the negotiations. I mean, it's an interesting report, I have to say. Uh, and But I have to agree with the, the Save the Children that politically, I don't really see any moving forward on most of the, the suggestions that you have, because the problem is the same as we have right now. But I have a question about the, the harmonization that you're talking about. What's the price for harmonization? What would it be? Because the problem right now is in harmonization is that if we would harmonize in all the EU member states, it would mean that probably half would have to diminish the rights of asylum seekers. So is that the price that we should pay, or? Should we, because we could never reach the higher level if we want harmonization. It would have to be a lower level. And I mean, that's what we are fighting in, uh, I mean, for the Swedes, Swedish perspective, we understand that if we want harmonization, it would be less right than we have it right now. Thank you.
2: Is there a third question? No? No. Um, first of all, um, just to be uh, straightforward if we don't make any differentiation between a person that have asylum granted and persons that have their application rejected we can't save the asylum right that's a point that I think everybody will agree with now uh, this don't uh, mean that uh, this doesn't mean that uh, we should not respect comply with uh, human dignity and good treatment of the people but as Marco Olivier say, mm. said and he will probably elaborate on that uh, we need to have some kind of readmission agreement with uh, the origin countries where the EU should play a a higher uh, level of involvement and then should play a, a, a most important uh, uh, a role than leaving every single country dealing with uh, the country of origin, we, which with some countries is, is, a, is really difficult. Just think about the relation between France and Algeria, for example. I think it's much better to have the EU taken. That in uh, in charge than leaving uh, France uh, uh, negotiate bilaterally uh, with uh, Algeria. Uh, now. Uh coming to uh, so uh, uh, to, to, to to be clear on the response of course if some uh, asylum seeker has his application its application rejected and has no right uh, on the labor uh, legal migration or the family legal migration to stay it should be uh, just sent back to uh, the country of origin yes that's unfortunately uh, 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 the, the, the the system um, now uh, l- l- regarding the Political, uh, I would say, reasonability of our proposal. Uh, One of our proposals is is to say that probably it is not time to expect uh, an agreement uh, with uh, uh, 27 countries. But maybe it's time to think to an agreement between a set of countries. Among which probably the Mediterranean countries, probably Germany, of course, maybe also the Benelux, if they are happy to to share that and to say, okay, we are in this type of close circle, we renounce to the Dublin system, and we are putting in place between us a different system, just to show that it may work. Uh, That's an idea, of course, but we agree that uh, we don't see a a way to have uh, an adoption of uh, uh, a completely different system in the coming months, of course.
5: Yes, I am gladly want to reply to that question about returns. Um, Yes, it is a problem. Uh, We've actually written a report not so long ago about uh, children that have been returned to Afghanistan, where we followed. around 60 children that were returned from several European countries, including Sweden, uh, to Afghanistan. And we asked them also. Of course, firstly, I have to say, as if the children, we do not think sending children back to Afghanistan right now is a good idea. Uh-huh, we, we don't support it. But we also asked them what they would need in order to want to return and in order to be able to return. And, I think the most important thing is that they can envision their return, that they can see it, that they can see, okay, I will be moving back to this community, this is my school, this is my house, this is my environment, and have a concrete reintegration plan. Uh, That really helps. And we're also working with a lot of governments to collect best practices. And for instance, the UK has a family return panel where they work together with families. And in the beginning, they're a bit hesitant. And of course, the initial reflex of a lot of people is to go underground and to disappear. But the case management approach, where you work together with families and kind of prepare them for their departure, they get some financial incentives, and they kind of really can see what is happening to them in their country of origin, that has really helped. I am a strong proponent of voluntary return, because forced return is very difficult, and if you also look at it, in many European member states, voluntary return is the only thing that really works, Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, not to mention Sweden again, but I know that there were a lot of people from Iraq that just voluntarily chose to return, and that was then the most effective. So I think if you want to um, make sure that people that cannot have a right to stay here, And that they return effectively—that could be one step. But of course, we shouldn't forget that, and that's also a point that you raised. One of the most important obstacles to return is third-country cooperation. If third countries not recognizing their own citizens, or don't want to want to cooperate, even refusing flights to land in their countries with returnees. So there's a lot of practical. Obstacles there. Um, Another thing also that that was in the report that I liked is even if someone is a rejected asylum seeker, it might be worth looking at which other regular pathways they could have to stay in a country. I know a Sudanese boy in Belgium that was um, refused asylum, but then he is now working as a chef, and a chef is kind of a profession of which we don't have enough, so now he will have the right of residency here and he's already working. Mm -hmm. So there are several ways uh, to look at this issue, uh, I think. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of harmonization, I didn't write a report, but I would, of course, support a harmonization according to the Swedish model, pre-emergency and temporary laws. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we as single children would stand for, no? Uh,
3: just maybe to add a, a very uh, rapid word on harmonization, I think the key propositions that we make is First harmonisation is independence of the procedure uh, of the and, and the judge who decides for asylum, and which is not necessarily uh, a new cost for for countries. It's it's more an administrative uh, decision to give independence uh, to uh, the agencies that in each country are in charge of this. And the second point, uh, I, which is really key is the authorization to get on the labor market yeah. quickly. And it doesn't imply any cost, as I see it. So of course, um, on the rest, I agree with you um, probably uh, that the Swedish situation is better than elsewhere. But on these two key points, I think it's not a um, um, an impossible um, uh, an impossible uh, challenge.
2: And there are plenty of uh, EU directives that are uh, putting in place a minimum harmonization without, of course, prohibiting a country to have higher standards, uh, which is probably something we can think of. <coughs> <about>. mm-hmm.
4: <clears throat> Last question, and then we're closing. <laughs> okay.
2: Just go ahead.
4: Let's get it out, Michael. Um, The elections have been
6: mentioned and the possible negative outcome and also the lack of political pressure or the the political reluctance basically. So basically this is asking for the citizens' approval and citizens' support. What kind of communication do you think is needed to create that awareness and who should be perhaps together should be responsible for that communication?
2: Um, according to my own experience, uh, if you take time to explain the difference between asylum, right, and migration, it is much easier to uh, have a kind of support from the persons you are meeting with. Uh, but this is a, a, an important point, And I think this is probably a priority at the level uh, of the EU for the next election to say and to, to explain people what we are doing is to try to save the asylum right in the EU. Not to put in place right now, even if we think that it should be done uh, at, a, at, a, at a, a moment or, or, or later, not, uh, but to uh, protect the asylum right, which is part of our values and part of the values that are uh, at the origin of the uh, EU construction.
5: Yes. Um, yes, I think well, <laughs> I've been to so many meetings about framing and communication and how to communicate a message. I think what we need to realize is that people are reluctant to listen to experts. And what we now try and say the children in our communication is to let, for instance, guardians speak about uh, what their experience is with asylum-seeking children. Um, we let foster parents speak uh, about their experience, and neighbors, et cetera, so that So that, that, that generates a little more trust for other citizens and what I also think we need is a strong defense and a narrative on why we want to safeguard the right to asylum in the EU because that is really the question I am also confronted with a lot, like why in the EU? Why should we be playing that part? Why can't other countries play that part? And I think we really need to think about that uh, with these upcoming elections. On this
4: hopeful note about winning hearts and minds, (laughs) thank you so much for participating. Thank you so much for the panelists. Um, I hope to see you next time, especially on the migration report when it comes out.
0: It's a pleasure.